We have been talking a lot about digital manufacturing and how it's transforming the way products are created today. In the traditional model of contract manufacturing, customers like you are often locked into specific factories and foot the cost for delayed products, suffer from lack of communication and transparency, and overall loss of control with manufacturing of your product. None of it is easy or frictionless, but it doesn't have to be this way. Macrofab offers a true CM marketplace with elastic factory capacity. This means that when you place your order with Macrofab, we will find the best factory in our network to deliver high quality PCB assembly and system integration with no friction at competitive prices every time, all through a completely digital online experience. Go from prototype to high volume production with one CM. Visit macrofab.com today and try our free demo of our digital platform. Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Greg Paulson. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 181. Greg is the leader of the application engineering team at Zometry, an online instant quoting platform for custom manufacturing projects, which utilizes a professional network of thousands of manufacturers. Greg's team handles special case projects that require attention to material selection, design for manufacturing, and technical engineering resources. Greg also plays a vital role in vetting new technologies and materials to add to Zometry's manufacturing portfolio. Greg's background is in product development using rapid prototyping, focusing on the various applications of industrial 3D printing and advanced manufacturing. So Greg, thank you for coming on to our podcast. Happy to be here. And... What is Exometry and then who are you? <laughs> yeah. So, Exometry is a marketplace uh, that we've created to solve this problem of custom manufacturing and procurement. Uh, procurement typically is a very opaque industry, uh, not just for large OEM work, but also for custom manufacturing projects, which is still in itself, you know, about $80 billion of an industry. And uh, typically it's local to local. And we have actually created and uh, created an AI-driven system that connects your project needs with a natural distributed network of professional manufacturers. So it starts with our website where you can upload a 3D CAD file. It actually instantly interprets the CAD file and actually will give you a price and lead time for multiple technologies from CNC machining to sheet metal to urethane cast uh, to we have six uh, six plus. 3D printed technologies and over 60 materials from those. So at a click of a button and within seconds, you're getting instant pricing and you click and buy whatever you have your product fully uh, specced out. And of course, the other side is our manufacturers, which is more like a Uber for them. They're looking at uh, what technologies and what, uh, uh, what the project scope is and understanding if it fits them and the price that we're gonna pay in the lead time, they click yes. And it's instant work for these small business manufacturers to get quality parts out and through and uh, back to our customers. That sounds really cool, uh, Greg. Um, so what got you into, did you like, how did you start at, at Zometry? Yeah, so this is actually really interesting. I, um, I worked in product development and I was working for a, a company as a part of the product development team and I was working rapid prototyping. So I was running a selective laser centering and I myself was doing anything that needed to be wrapped prototype was kind of coming through 
uh, through me to source. So whether it was a um, you know DMLS project, FTM, SLS, um, even some CNC works that we couldn't do in our internal shop, uh, it was coming through me. So I was actually feeling this kind of pain already of like having to buy, you know, sending out a spreadsheet saying please quote quantity one five ten twenty five fifty, you know, waiting a few days, and working through that. And meanwhile, I'm also working on an engineering project, system engineering, and uh, and running the RP lab that we had internally. Um, I was missing 3D printing friends. I was doing this in Northern Virginia area, and it turns out in that area there is no professional manufacturers for 3D printing. So one day I run across um, who is now a colleague of mine, a guy named Dave Tedder, uh, wrote something on a LinkedIn forum that was, for, that was on for 3D printing, and it was a great comment. And then it said, Maryland, director of additive manufacturing. I was like, what the heck is this? I ended up finding the company uh, and uh, applying to it the day afterwards because I was like, please, I need more colleagues. I need, I need my 3D printing friends and, uh, and join on the team through business development. And that was five years ago. That was actually right at the very beginning of the company. So it started off with the entire team could sit at a conference table, you know, and worked everything from, you know, sales to engineering to manufacturing to fulfillment, uh, deliveries, like we all were shipping at the end of the day. And now we are over 200 employees in this company after five years and uh, we've raised 118 million dollars I mean it's been a whirlwind uh, from there but yeah my background was just making stuff and getting my hands dirty failing a lot uh, dealing with a lot of technologies a lot of parts and it fit me very well here because we offer so many technologies we make a lot of parts well and in your bio you you're also in charge of onboarding new materials and figuring out how that works out right yeah yeah so um, we've uh, added at a decent pace, uh, different technologies and materials. Um, I keep in touch with the industry um, and I work with an internal team as well. And we figure out what our customers asking for, like who, like what are these custom material requests? Um, we look at the business case behind them. We also look at certain things like, can we reproduce this? So not just does it exist, but is it past academia? Is it something where I can have multiple manufacturers, and if I say build this, the there's a reasonable expectation that the quality and the consistency is going to be there between multiple manufacturers. So in some cases that gets more boring, like for example, like FDM, there's a bajillion FDM printers out there. We're using probably the most standardized, most industrial ones. So those are FDM uh, Fortis machines from Stratasys, but that gives us you know high levels of repeatability and consistency across a vast network. So we, you know, by far have the largest capacity of any, you know, 3D printer because we're utilizing, you know, bureaus upon bureaus upon bureaus uh, with that. So one of the things that I find really interesting is the parallel between Zometry and Macrofab because Macrofab is effectively the same style of platform, but for PCBs. So you upload your files, you tell them how you want your PCB to be, you give them your bill of materials, and in a few weeks, some stuff arrives at your door. The thing that is different in my mind is that us as electrical engineers are a lot more used to giving electronic design files to somebody, having them interpret it and give us what we expect. I mean, all of the stuff that we need for that board is typically baked into those files, so that's something where we it sits really nice with us. But when it comes to manufacturing a physical object 
out of another material, regardless of the style, that's, at least in my experience, that's a lot less uh, conducive to just packaging it up in electronic file, giving it to someone and say, here you go, make me something. So something I'd love to really like dive into is the uh, making CNC manufacturing, 3D printing, whatever you pick the style, like how is the digital world, like how is, how is that evolving into manufacturing and how are we kind of going from a guy just showing up at your door with a manila folder with drawings? How are we changing that over to a digital world? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's uh, uh it's very interesting. And you know, the barrier to entry, uh, for Zometry, and I'm sure Macrofab is in the same case, is you need that model. You need at least, at a bare minimum, that 3D model to do any interpretation and to work with us, because that is going to be what's going to transfer from our instant pricing and our AI algorithm and our interpretation there, like the computational geometry behind that, uh, to when you're ordering, to what's going to be interpreted by the shop floor, uh, those machines, et cetera, et cetera. It all starts with 3D, which wasn't always the case. Um, in fact, actually, I've seen a big switch um, as time has gone on from, you know, even five years ago, and actually in a lot of industries, it's still the case, um, the print is king, and then there's a model. And, yeah, now we're, now we're actually really in an industry where model wins, print is guidance. And so it's really, really important uh, as the industry has flipped over this way to understand that, uh, especially when in, uh, when it comes to implications for manufacturing. So CNC machining, uh, to your point, Stephen, like when you're looking at uh, machining, a lot of our customers are customers who are very experienced in the industry. Um, they do uh, very nice PDF drawings. It's fully spec'd out. They know exactly what they want when they go on Zometry. They can click upload, uh, say, hey, this is 7075 aluminum. I need my COCs. I need my material certs. Just a couple checkboxes away. You know, a lot of them are ITAR. It's one more checkbox. Um, they can go and specify tight tolerances, uh, threads, tapped holes, inserts. Uh, part needs to be um, uridited. Click, you know, chem film. There you go. Upload your drawing. And that is enough information for us to get a quote based off how you specify and our, our drop down selections. But there still is that manual interaction post order from the machinists uh, interpreting. Uh, the, the works in between. So there's that stuff. And then there's the future, which is the model-based definition where you put all that information embedded in your CAD file and you upload to the uh, to your system. And it's like, Phew, I know what material, I know what process, I know what specs, I know where your type tolerances are, and I've automatically extracted that to give you an accurate quote. We're not there. Um, we have some really cool stuff happening in that area. Um, we have add-ins for, for example, for Inventor and SolidWorks that you can download for free on Zomptree.com and uh, you can get uh, those add-ins. So in SolidWorks, it actually can interpret some of that data. Like you put it in 6061, it'll interpret that and automatically apply it to your part. You can always override it saying, hey, I'm doing CNC machining, but I really want to make this out of selective laser center nylon because I'm just in a prototyping phase right now. But it tries to get ahead of you before, um, so you don't have to do the extra drop-downs and clicks. Um, but right now, it's that it's more of a dance of uh, knowing what you want, uploading your file, and specifying with the ease and speed that our site gives uh, on the pre-order side. So, so you think we're already at a point where drawings are uh, secondary in a way? I think so. Um, I, and I'll give you an example. All right, so 
say I have a unilateral tolerance. Uh, so unilateral to tolerance on a drawing would be like a plus zero minus ten thousandths. Uh, and a lot of times when drawing was king, say it was like part has to be one inch long plus zero uh, minus ten thousandths. When drawing was king, that part would be designed at um, one inch. I actually should probably say plus ten minus zero to make my make my analogy better here. But uh, if they like, if the machinist got that information and just started cutting metal and then was referencing tolerance, the chance that they accidentally cut that part out of spec on like their first pass is much much higher uh, in that CAD, CAD scenario where the CAD's built at the maximum condition. Now, if you are designing now where CAD is king. The drawing can still have the exact same callouts, but I actually may be, uh, it, I may be modeling to the middle, so to the nominal of that. So uh, say, for example, 0.995. Uh, and what that does is it allows me this almost a mitigation of risk on the machinist side, because the machinist is no longer like typing in code. They're using their own CAD interpretation programs to figure out the machining steps. So you want to keep that digital traceability, like kind of like what we call the virtual machine, as long as possible before we actually go and cut metal. So how can I create my virtual part, which is to the nominals and, and made in a way where it can be mitigated for any tight tolerances that I need? Uh, how does it get transferred through Zometry system and then our job board portal, which is all a digital kind of backend that our partners use to manage and track their jobs? And how does it get to their machine, which they're usually using something like Mastercam or other programming software, which is interpreting that 3D model, and then they cut metal, you know? And so like, so the, the more tightly you can couple the digital experience all the way up to the digital machine, like virtual simulation of the making of the part, uh, the more future-proof you're going to be uh, sure, for, your, sure. for your design. Yeah, that, 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 that makes sense. And, and I guess... So, so in in preparing for this podcast, one of the things that was going through my head is if I'm just providing a 3D model, a 3D model in so many ways is is highly, highly dependent upon the person drawing it and their mindset at the time of drawing it, especially when it comes to stack up uh, and and how. Like take for example in in my industry, there's a lot of tendency to pick a corner of a panel, and that is zero zero. Whereas some other people will pick dead center of the panel and that's zero, zero. And if, if it's properly dimensioned on a drawing, whoever's looking at it to machine it will be able to adjust properly for that. But in terms of a 3D model, maybe not. But it, it, once again, it all just depends on who's drawing it, right? Yeah, and we have so we have general manufacturing standards. And again, they vary. Like I, you know, I, I work in um, nine, ten different technologies on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, and each one of them has what we consider a general tolerance as well as, you know, what we consider accept, acceptance criteria uh, for them. Machining is what we know and it's uh, something we're most used to where I could go and trim down uh, uh, to those tolerances needed. Uh, but you're right, if I'm, if I'm designing a part that is not within those general tolerances, so if the wiggle room, it, if it can't wiggle, um, uh, like it can only go like, you know, two thou versus the standard five thou. Uh, you really need to either do something to your model to give you some more, more wiggle room, like make that hole into a slot, for mm -hmm. example, which is something that I see a lot in sheet metal design, you know, where it has a longer creep, especially the more you bend it, the more you have unpredictable 
um, stretches that happen when you bend. So adding that adding a slot may save your life and save your project there. Um, or put a drawing in. And so call it out, put a drawing in, and just make sure that the thing you're highlighting is the thing that is tighter than the general tolerance. So it's saying, bring your eyes to this, please. This is what I need to make my product successful. Machining tight tolerances and things, this is not impossible stuff. It's just something that we need to be aware of at the project beginning. Um, and it sometimes costs more because it may uh, require specialized tooling or um, you know, it may require a different setup of approach than what you typically do with those parts. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So we were talking a little bit earlier and you kept on mentioning stack up and assemblies. And it's funny for me because although stack up is important, especially if I'm making clamshell pieces and injection molding uh, when you're you know, not just making you know, a clamshell piece, but you're making thousands of them, you kind of want that repeatability in your design. But it's usually not the first thing spoken about. But for you, because you deal with PCBs, you're always in the middle of something. You're always in the middle of the enclosures that we may be making at Zometry. So it's actually really interesting how high you elevate stack up and this interference and in in building into assemblies. Because uh, even if you're right, you're wrong. You'll still get blamed by the ME if something doesn't <laughs> fit in fit in their their beautiful pristine you know print or their machined housing or their uh, injection molded part. They're gonna be like, how do these EEs not tell me the size of my board or you know how did this? <laughs> yeah. what, what's, it's the Sparky's fault, guys? right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's always like I, I used to sit. Uh, literally between the EE on my left hand side and the ME is kind of like across the hall, but like, you know, I could throw a rock at him mm. and just listen to them bicker back and forth. Uh, and uh, it was just so funny. And again, it was all friendly banter, but it was always like the ME is asking for, can you make this, uh, this part smaller? Cause I want to hit this form factor. Uh, and they thought they were being gracious. Every time they gave up like a cubic centimeter, like they're like, I made it a little larger for you. Come on, make it work, man. Like <laughs> it always just felt so gracious on their side. They were very proud of themselves. That's, when, that's funny. And, and you know, it's, it, we've talked about this multiple times on the podcast, but like having a good solid understanding of the other people that are having to deal with your crap, uh, is is really really important, and that goes to other people dealing with the double E's because you make a change to a an enclosure, and that then modifies the EE's PCB. That's not something you mm -hmm. just snap a finger and it's changed, oh, you know, because yeah. you may have just encroached upon that person's critical antenna territory or whatever that goes on that board, right? So Dude, yeah. just make the toroid smaller. Yeah, Come on, it's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, just just yeah. do it. You know, it'll be just fine. Just do that. It's 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 easy. Uh, yeah, and actually, you know, just from my observation, is uh, usually the more senior uh, the MEs are, especially in the pro in the product development, uh, electromechanical systems, the more they are aware and they become little bit of electrical engineers themselves. Like they already know like what type of board circuit sets and what type of clearance they are they're designing for. Um, and I see that too. Like the like you could really tell the difference between someone who's done it before. Like you know, skin their knuckles on uh, IM or other projects, versus those who's their first run. Like and even like how you see parts made together, how the drawings are made, uh, you can tell those differences. And that's actually a lot of what my team does uh, as well. Is we look and interpret and try to figure out for our customers what does the next six weeks look like for you? What does the next six months look like for this project? And what do the next six years look like for this project? Because if you get answers to all those questions you kind of get a reality check 
on where they are in the product design process. And uh, especially if there's a DFM issue that could be worked around and, you know, quantity two or three to hit you for that, you know, that short period of time uh, won't be an issue. But if you're like, hey, I want to move this up to 550 units or I want to move it up to 1200 units, then all of a sudden I really got to say, listen, you got a 30,000 wall here and I need this type of setup, this type of tooling, this type of slowdown to make this happen. And you're going to have a scalability issue on price. Um, so we can, if you make it a little bit thicker, then now we have a design for production uh, unit. So that's where those little tiny design tweaks become much more sensitive when you think production versus low volume uh, custom. Oh, absolutely. And uh, last week we were, we were talking with Chrissy Meyer for, uh, who designed for uh, in the millions. And, yeah. uh, and we were talking a lot about those little, those little tweaks matter a lot. And that 0.1% failure rate will really start to show up when, uh, when you start manufacturing that kind of quantity. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I'll give a shout out to that podcast. Cause I'm like, don't listen to me guys. Listen to Christie's podcast. That was awesome. Uh, the, um, something that I, I took away that I think was very interesting was, uh, and very relevant to what I've heard on injection mold side is, you know, I want this to look Apple good and, uh, kind of rebroadcasting. She's like, Apple can afford a 20% scrap. Like Apple can afford for our first product line to throw out, throw away one out of five things to get a product that looks beautiful to our customers. But for the most part, when you're working this low volume custom, I mean, a lot of times you're working on IoT devices or things that don't even have that level of scale where... Or that level you know, of margin to be that, able to do that. That level of margin, like you can't can't afford it. So it's, it's very interesting <laughs> to see what the strengths and trade-offs are. Stupid tons of money. Yeah, I mean, do you want a mold texture finish or can you do a bead blast here? You know, what? Uh, we can get stuff and bring it to 85% and still beautiful. Like manufactured products... I mean, there's still so much that you can do that is standardized. Uh, so stuff where you see a fully integrated product line, uh, like the things that you're seeing around you know, your desk every day, especially in electronics, um, it's, they make that tool, they make that part, they make that design, and then they tweak it again, and they tweak it again, and they do you know, build-ups, cut-downs, build-ups, cut-down, and they make a highly repeatable process, but it's not the first go. Oh, for yeah, sure. It is. It is. Yeah, it is. Engineering change orders. ECO, ECO to work that way. You, you know, something real quick to interject into there that I think is super important that a lot of people miss is when you're defining, well, not even when, you need to define what quality is. And and I, I truly do mean define that in like writing. Write out what good is. And that's sort of like the, the kind of like almost opening statement to your quality document as a whole across your company. Like, what does it mean when we say good job? And when you're That's talking, totally correct. When, but when you're talking about actually doing an inspection of something, you actually have boil it down. Like think of, think of whoever's doing the inspection. Think of if they were a robot, how would you tell them to define what quality is literally say like, hold this two feet from your face for an indefinite period of time. And if you can't see blends, then that's good. You know, that that's a definition. Cause I mean, if, if you just hand something to someone to say, is this good? Well, everyone's going to look at it differently. Some guy might throw it under a microscope and you put anything under a microscope and it's going to be, it's going to fail. Right. You know? So like, I, just a short tangent, but define that. Well, yeah, it's 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 like defining you going from treating it like art to an engineering sample or engineering or uh, manufacturing 
uh, specifications at that point. Where if you hand, if I hand something to Steven and say, "Does this look good?" That's subjective. Absolutely, you have to make it yeah. objective. And I can I can tell you again, working with you know ten plus technologies, you know seven or six seven three D printing technologies, and then uh, you have you know your uh, sheet metal CNC. There's um, there is so much a difference of expectation between those, and you may be the best CNC designer on the planet, but you may not know what SLA looks like, for example, in three D printing. And one of the things that you know was a big part was on my job, and actually, um, this end of 2019, we're building up uh, knowledge hubs and more guides. I'm actually just doing a video on surface finishes, and I'm doing a video on uh, anodized chem film, um, uh, metal plating, when to choose those. But trying to get visual and sometimes like audiovisual explanations of surface finishes and the expectation from a process to our customers is sometimes the biggest thing because you can just click and drag and select and press buy. And, but uh, sometimes the knowledge that when you say clear anodize on a CNC part, it anodize inherently clouds. So if you have this beautiful 32RA CNC part that looks, uh, you know, just it's it's one of those things you, you put on the front of your website, when you anodize it, it doesn't necessarily make the part bad but cosmetically, it actually clouds it up a little bit. It makes gives it a little bit of a haze. And so having that understanding that these processes uh, do affect your parts, affect your cosmetics, and and uh, understanding what that looks like is sometimes half the battle. Um, 3D printing is is right there, too. It's, it's more of a help me choose and help me understand right now because uh, no one knows all these technologies. So the more visual guides, the more we have our online design guides, our FAQs, um, application engineering team. I mean, we're all there because we need we need to be to elevate the customer's projects and make sure that not only are they choosing the material process that works best, but also that they have the expectation that when they press buy, this is what they'll receive. That that clear anodized reminds me of my Jeep Wagoneer because I have a bunch of polished aluminum on it. That actually, what happened over like the last fifty years of this vehicle's life is the anodizing has failed and scratched and gotten terrible looking and so i stripped it all off and i made it all nice and polished and now i'm like do i really want to get it anodized and clouded again or am i going to spend every month polishing aluminum i was going to say well you're <laughs> going to get that natural oxide layer anyway so expect corrosion this is uh, yes. i mean the polish is going to help right it's going to help prevent little micro gaps but expect corrosion until you do some level of protective coating to it yeah <laughs> That should be the name of this podcast. Expect corrosion. Expect corrosion. <laughs> yeah, you should. Uh, you should find a way to nickel plate. That is beautiful. I I love nickel plating. W- weren't you Weren't you doing something similar to that, Parker? Oh, you were electroplating, right? Yeah. Well, nickel plating, you do it with le- le- electrolysis. Right, but but you were doing something not nickel, right? Plastics. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, There's, it's interesting. Tupperware and car batteries in the backyard? No, actually just a little lab power supply. You don't need a lot. Oh, you don't need that much juice? Are you plating plastics with metal? Is that what you're working on, or is it the plating? Yeah, like spray painting them with like a conductive paint, Mm -hmm. and then you can plate over that. Um, It seems, it works okay. I actually... I, I haven't got anything that I'm like, would be like, that looks amazing, but I'm like, okay, I can see that this process actually works. Yeah, I actually have um, a little piece of uh, nickel-plated SLS uh, right in front of me. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so 
we we have nickel plating as an uh, it's the only option that we have uh, for a plated part is nickel plated SLS. And what it really is is a four thousandths of an inch buildup of nickel. So they do uh, kind of what you're talking about. It's not a paint, but it's a a proprietary process where you build up a small layer, like you think like half a thou of copper, and then that creates that uh, conductive exoshell. And then you will uh, do a bath and uh, plate it up with nickel. What's unique about 3D printing versus other processes is other processes are usually like plate down. I have a um, very clear uh, chemical path for this plating to build up on. Uh, with 3D printing, you usually have much more organic design. So you actually have to place your anodes and cathodes kind of custom. So it's almost like a custom wire project that looks like a little roller coaster going around the part in order to, to get an even buildup of this 3D printed parts. But something I noticed, it's not cosmetic. Like in, in uh, SLS, you have this natural kind of sugar cubey uh, finish to it, like this, this almost a grainy finish to, to the material. It's nylon, but it's built in a powder bed, and it gets that powder uh, finish inherently to it. And it just exaggerates. It's more like Princess and the Pea. It'll make the, the nickel buildup will just show the layer, show the graininess more, but it does increase stiffness and strength probably about 5x or so. So if I want to make a design that is ruggedized outdoor use, and uh, I it will be cost prohibitive to 3D printed metal or to uh, 5x mill and make a very complex part, sometimes nickel plating is the best option. And it's also for EMI shielding, of course. You, you know, you, you were mentioning um, kind of adjusting the, your knowledge base to include a little bit more of uh, these topics or images on those things. And um, I think that would be images with a like a little bit more of a description would be incredibly helpful. Uh, it's interesting this week I've kind of been doing some uh, some shopping online for some metals for some stuff that I'm quoting out. And one thing that I've found is just it's difficult to get people to commit to even write something about the aesthetics of a surface finish. Like you'll get, you'll get someone describing a mill finish or something, and it's just a description of the functionality of a mill finish. Or if somebody says like stainless steel number four brush finish, they'll just describe that it was sent through a time saver with X grit or something like that. And all of that is great in terms of the functionality. And, and in so many cases, us as engineers, like that's what we care about, right? You know, that's mill finish, good enough kind of thing. But to have a good image of a mill finish and say, you know, you would, you could expect X, Y, Z in terms of the aesthetics. I think that's actually very important and something that you don't really see very often. Yeah. And to, to that point, I mean, it's, uh, it's sometimes difficult. I mean, it's, it sounds, sounds weird, but I'll give you an example. When we vet our manufacturing partners, so we go through first kind of like the online side, which is them uh, working through a pro profile, uh, completing an onboarding and also completing the NDA. Uh, once we uh, get them through that stage, we send them a job. And that job is a test part, and they're able to make this test part. And this test part, they have the exact same CAD model. You have the same drawing. And uh, we get these back, and the parts look different. And so say they all have a 32 finish or you know 63 uh, finish to them, uh, something to note is that when I measure that, the tool that is used to measure finish is a profilometer. And it looks like kind of like a, almost like a record needle that 
will extend a little bit out and then kind of drag back along that part. And all it's looking for is that variation of how much up and down I'm moving to tell you what that surface finish is. So I can actually get it achieve like a 63 or 32 finish through Scotch-Brite. Like some, you know, it's more beautiful when I do it through mill. Like I, you know, get this, you know, 0.75 inch end mill and I do these nice clean pat final passes. And that's what I love. I love seeing that, that stuff. But you can achieve the same surface finish, which is technically two spec through different means. So when I say, you know, when you, when you ask for these pictures, it's actually really interesting because like, you know, there is the as milled standard finish, but there's also ways to achieve that where you may require a manual process and it looks very different. It looks brushed, uh, even though measuring is equivalent. Right, right. It's it's so hard to you it's so hard to describe this in words, the final product. I think that's why people like Apple have armies of people who have a very well-defined, this is what it should be. Yeah, and well, even like, I know molding, if we have prior experience, so if they're doing an up or a change, and uh, they have an example of what they want, I mean, it's worth its weight in gold because we can help set their expectations and manage it that way. And I even think like on injection molding, again, a very well-established industry, an industry all about reproduction, uh, there are, you know, very well-defined like SPI finishes and mold texturing finishes that really do help you uh, achieve a unanimous expectation of what the results are going to be because it's, again, it's measurable or for, for example, mold tech comes from mold tech. It's from one location. So there's equivalence of that. So a lot of times like the, the bead blast, you can get uh, the equivalence of like the 11010, uh, 11020 finishes. Uh, but some of that is, you know, is almost proprietary and it does control it does create repeatability in that factor so it's different um di depending on the process there's different levels of standardization and, and again even depending on the shop like so cnc uh their finish may be different from the next door machine shop uh so you notes on drawings pictures of prior work um even what we have at zometry is we uh oftentimes will look at repeat work and make sure that it goes to that same shop not only does that help the shop out because they already have the uh, the pathing and everything set up so it helps them but it helps the consistency and the expectations for our customers so we have some of the stuff embedded uh but yeah it's it's a can of worms uh talking about the first run what you're going to get you can always give feedback after you make it but your part literally has never existed before before we make it. So it's, you know, it's very hard to get that feedback up front uh, on your first run. Yeah. For sure. And, and, you know, it's interesting. So you, you mentioned consistency and it kind of goes segues into the next kind of thing I wanted to talk about, which was the breaking or the continuing of the traditional uh, client manufacturer relationship. There's, I mean, the, the, the classical way is that you establish a relationship with a manufacturer that you trust, that you know. Um, I mean, from past experience, one, I mean, one manufacturer I had, we didn't even call them by their first name. We called them by the contact. Her name was Vonnie. Uh, like, everyone was like, did you contact Vonnie to get our, you know, 50,000 pieces of XYZ? You know, like, we had a direct human relationship going on in this manufacturing. Well, Zometry kind of breaks that in a way. But does it? Like, I don't know the details behind all that. Well, I'll definitely say we have strong relationships with our manufacturing partners. There, there's a lot of them, but if you look at our partner team, it's exactly like that. It's, uh, it, they are... 
they know everybody by the first name. Uh, usually, sometimes it's because something something happened one time where we had a lot had to have a longer conversation. But um, you know, on our side, I always describe Zometry for the customer as a sword and shield. We are there to fight for you, to make sure that the quality is right, uh, and really work on the customer's behalf to to ensure that um, again they're getting parts that they've ordered, uh, you know, on time to spec. Uh, on our partner side, though, our work is totally dependent on the success of our manufacturing partners. Uh, so we have the relationship, and for our partners, um, we are perceived both as a partner as well as a top customer to them. So it's a little bit different because they, you know, you don't know what you're getting tomorrow uh, in that ways. But we we do keep the work coming uh, through our online job board platform. So what our manufacturers expect from Zometry is a continuous flow of work that they could take on demand. Uh, you know, so if they have, you know, say they have a power outage or something like that, they don't need to take work. You know, they can they could pass, but once they come back on, um, you know, they could they could continue uh, working and taking the jobs and uh, and you know as they complete and as they get as they get a decent quality score. So we have kind of like a score from uh, you know up to a hundred called the partner success score. Um, they can take more work and more work in parallel. So we have these benchmarks, we have these things to build the relationship with our partners stronger, both digitally through like a process-driven workflow, as well as, you know, our partner management, our case management team. You know, there's many touch points that they have within Zometry, and, you know, by no means do we feel separated from them. Like we're, you know, we're in the trenches with them, making sure that everything comes out successfully. Um, I, I also want to take a note that a lot of us, including myself, we came from manufacturing backgrounds. So uh, a lot of the, our team members are professional machinists, um, you know, mold, uh, mold techs, mold makers. Uh, you know, I, I have a decade plus experience in ad professional additive manufacturing. Like I've never touched a desktop printer. I've only worked on, you know, industrial additive manufacturing my entire career. And it's just something I'm very, very comfortable with. And we have other folks in, you know, direct metal laser sintering experts, SLA experts, uh, on our team, and these people have, you know, built their own work centers, worked for, you know, developing companies, they've worked for uh, um, large, you know, OEM entities. And so when we get on the phone, a lot of times, you know, we're not just there to be like, hey, what's going on here? But we're like, how can I help? Like, you know, we, we have our on, onboard machine team, you know, most of these guys are 30 plus years experience. Believe me, they could walk through and figure out where the issue is. Uh, I remember my colleague, Jason, he, he was talking through a project, I think it was like 40 pieces, and he was able to remove eight hours of build time per piece. Hmm. And the beautiful thing, the beautiful workaround of this was, not only did they save a project and it's lead time, but then he's like, now that you have all this capacity, can you take this job too? Like, it was kind of like this win-win. <laughs> it's like, let's, let's, uh, let's give you some more work now. That's pretty cool, because technically, I guess in a way, people supply you with work and then you supply someone else with work. So you are a middleman, but not only are you just like dumping work on somebody, you're also providing expertise that goes above and beyond that. Yeah. This is the, this is the new realm of manufacturing as a service. And I mean, very much you guys are in the, in the same realm. Like you are a platform uh, that does the matchmaking of capabilities with those who are best to produce that 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 works and I think that's really important to note is that we are more focused on the project by project basis and what's needed to most successfully complete that project and who can do that best than necessarily 
the customer to manufacturer relationship. So we're we're more focused on making good parts and building up that building up our repertoire of making good parts uh, as far as between the customer exp- the customer experience and knowing that we are a marketplace platform. Right. Well, and and the thing is, manufacturing never fits in one bucket. It, it's never it's never just one thing that works for everyone, and you just press a button and go. And and Macrofab, as an example, like you mentioned earlier, the idea of like a kind of a small run IoT device. We'll take that versus another small run, but say it's like a really high tech military device that's going to go in a fighter jet. There's both small volume, but they have incredibly different requirements to them. And I know Macrofab can say like, oh, okay, so here's the IoT device. Here's a manufacturer that will be really good for that. But this military application is going to require all these certifications, all this other stuff. We've got another guy who's happy to do that too. And it's nice to be able to upload to Macrofab and have Macrofab make the decision on where that goes, right? To be the fork in the road. It, I always use the Amazon analogy. Like you go order your uh, your robot vacuum, your toothpaste, and like a back scratcher. And they may be in three re- warehouses, but all you care about is Amazon. When you press order, it's like, your parts will ship Thursday. And so all you care about as a customer in your experience is that they you know they ship out Thursday. And they arrive at your door Friday, and you get your parts, and you're you're good to go. And that's that's kind of the zometry experience. Is we take care of the supply chain. You put up a urethane cast right next to a FDM 3D 3D print, right next to a sheet metal, right next to a brass CNC, right next to a 4140 uh, fifth axis with you know tight tolerances, high specs, and you press place order, and we figure out the best way to distribute that across our manufacturing network, so you get all your projects. Uh, you know. On Friday. Yeah, yeah, sure. Makes makes total sense. So so actually so about approvals and certifications. Uh to be honest, I'm not super aware of what uh approvals and certifications would apply to just a standard manufacturing um facility in terms of like a machine shop or something, but it, say a customer has a specific requirement uh, do you guys try to uh, work that out with the customer and find someone who can meet those requirements? Yeah, so it starts with your online dashboard, so the, this, the quote management tool. So you uh, click, drag, upload, and you start to specify. Um, and what you're doing is you're kind of writing a love letter to the manufacturers. You're, you're uploading your part, and you're, <laughs> you, start to, you start to specify all these things. You upload your drawing. And, and just certain certain check boxes that you put in. So you put so I, I'll I'll take ITAR. I think ITAR is a very uh, obvious example, and it's something very relevant. And I think we're very popular for the ITAR marketplace. Um, as soon as you select our ITAR, several mechanisms happen on our data set to make sure that those parts will never go non-ITAR. Like as soon as you check it, like even if you uncheck it, it's like we have to hard code it out because we, we're like this part maybe ITAR, and uh, it it closes up which manufacturing partners will be able to see that job, regardless of the process. Um, once it's ordered, and uh, and those those all those partners have a certain protocol, like they have to make sure that they have updated on their site, um, relevant and non-expired ITAR certs, which are they renew every year, um, and and then you start sele- selecting more things. Select COCs. You select material certs. You. Um, you put a finish on, you select a certain material. So say you take titanium, for example, and put a custom finish on it. All this stuff will then reference back to our vast manufacturing network, over 3,000 partners. 
and look at all those and say, who fits this? You know, who, who fits this? And that is the organization in which you're able to push that work to. Like no one else will see that work. Uh, so part of our quality assurance is just making sure, first off, the people who see the work are the right shops. Um, the other side is that feedback loop. So when we start these manufacturing partners out, they're not just direct shipping to our customers. Um, we expect the parts to be right, but they come to Zometry first to our uh, Maryland, Maryland location where we do a second QA and it goes through our QA facility. In fact, actually, if you, we used to have a machine shop and we used to do a, you know, a lot of machine works and now it's mostly we have QA and shipping. Like we have this beautiful QA department and uh, we're getting, again, different piece parts in all the time, every single day. And we're running it through, we're looking at the digital traceability, like a, a partner can upload their records, their inspection reports, uh, in-process photos. Uh, so we have their traceability and their, um, you know, their reports, and then we can actually cross-reference or do our own reports, our own inspection uh, in-house to make sure that the parts are right before they go to the customer. Once those customers build up a higher repertoire, what, you know, say they have a 98 PSS, which is a partner success score, um, we start to move them to our ultimate goal, which is that direct ship, where if we can find that the quality that they're performing at is the same quality that we expect internally, then we, you know, they're able to direct ship and uh, they, there's some benefits to that. So you have a little bit of extra working time and some other, some other great things. But, you know, our goal is to bring all our manufacturing partners up to that. Uh, because we can elevate them through our platform. Like you get feel, you get more feedback from our system than you would with your customers. Your customers just don't come back usually. Like, you know, with us, we're like, hey, you know, this bumped up your score. Your score went down because you're a day behind here. And you can actually see almost like a stock ticker, like your, your success or like which jobs affected and why. Uh, on it's your credit score. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind manufacturing. of manufacturing. It's kind oh, of yeah. cool, though, because you, you, you get more than just a date. You get a goal on top of that. Uh, you know, a lot of times with the customer, it's just like, I give you money, here's a date, give me my thing, and we'll talk again when I need more thing. Uh, getting getting that kind of like, uh, what comes to mind is like the uh, blood drive thermometer, you know, that goes up and down. Like, you get something to shoot for uh, as a whole company, right? Yeah, and even like, you know, parallel work. So uh, when a partner starts off, they can only take one job at a time. So even this goal is you build up your partner's success score, build up good work, you can start doing more parallel work and take higher revenue jobs. And all that is, you know, if you're maxed out, if you could take three jobs concurrently and you have three jobs in, you kind of want to finish that job because you know that a slot opens up and boom, you can take another one through. And the more you do this, the more you build up. I mean, it's a, it's a very positive reinforcing feedback loop. Like, I mean, positive in like the happy smiley face positive way uh, where it's, you know, we want to elevate our manufacturers up. And even us, we're elevating them to at least an ISO 9001 uh, standardization just by using our interface. And then Zometry itself is AS9100, which is an aerospace standard. That's uh, that's pretty hardcore. I've looked into, I've, I've worked 9001 before, but the uh, the other one is, uh, I've looked into it and I'm like, oh gosh. <laughs> it's a lot, it's more documentation. It's a pain in the ass. That's what it is. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's something important to note is, you know, it's not just individual product developers who are using us. Uh, actually, several of our investors were customers first. So BMW, uh, GE, um, Bosch just joined on, um, uh, Dell Computers, like all these investors in Zometry actually were clients and were using us and they're like, this is pretty cool. Like it, it, it's one of those things. Like I, I think uh, 
I was listening to like a podcast on, you know, a guy from Stonyfield and uh, he's like, the hardest part about selling my project was at 18 inches from your hand to your mouth. Like, how can I get that spoon into their mouth? And then, you know, they're like, man, this, this yogurt is, is awesome. And that's kind of like for us, like, as soon as you go on the site and upload a 3D CAD file and you see how, like, it's, it's not like submit your quote here. It's like you upload and it's like, boom, $214. And you're like, hold up, hold up. I haven't even thought about this yet. All right. And, and as soon as you select, boom, updated. All right. Now it's went to seven business days. And you you see this in real time. And when you start, as soon as you see the site, the value prop, it's just like, holy crap, I've been doing it wrong for years. Like this is, it's it's right there. And, and you're getting you're getting everything else out of it that you've been looking for. Awesome. Okay. So one other thing actually about approvals and certs that kind of goes along. Um, in the past, my experience has been, uh, that that a lot of people like to do like a like a walkthrough of the factory and they like to meet the people and they like to see the guy who's running the mill and there's that kind of like salesy like walk around and shake hands kind of thing is what 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 is there to allow for that or is there anything yeah it's that is interesting um my answer is kind of yes and no right so uh, we have a um, we have a dedicated group of uh, account executives, which of course have, you know, they've worked several projects and usually very good and have built up very strong relationships with directly with our customers. Uh, that being said, you know, our site is not where the magic happens. You know, the magic's happening at this distributed manufacturing uh, marketplace that, that we've created. So it's really hard to say, uh, you know, first off, we're not, we don't typically predict where the parts are going to go before you press order. Like, you know, all that pricing and everything, it's, it's not our RFQ bid system, it's our AI algorithm saying, hey, parts like this with this type of features will cost this much. And, you know, it's, so that's, that's our algorithm spitting that out. So even up front, it's, it's very hard for me to say, your parts are gonna end up here to kind of do the meet and greet. What we can do is give confidence by our process, you know, again, who works with us, our case studies, the content that we're, we're building out, um, talking with application engineers uh, is sometimes very good because they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, these guys know their, their stuff. And uh, and we want to give confidence that when you press buy, you're going to get what you want. But that the walkthrough, uh, it's not a thing in the past because I've seen it. We've done it uh, for certain customers or certain clients, especially production runs. Uh, but it's something that may not be necessary to start the relationship anymore. That totally makes sense. Your value is not a manufacturing floor. It's you being what you said earlier. You're their short uh, sword and shield, so to speak. Yeah, that's. Uh, by the way, that's exactly how I answer for our customers because I still don't have a canned answer for <laughs> for uh, customer walk walkthroughs. I'm like, uh, let's see. Well, and it's um, so funny no, because, I, like, in in thinking about this this prod podcast, doing prep for it, what's going through my mind is all of the. I'm doing air quotes here, older engineers that I've worked with that have a very set way of doing things. And practically everything about Zometry breaks everything that, that makes them comfortable. And and I could just hear the, the kind of arguments that would go in the engineering department of like, we can't use it because of X, Y, Z, you know, and... So that's why I'm asking a lot of these questions because I'm curious myself on how does Zometry fit that mold? See, what it, the problem there, Stephen, is those people just want their free, like, lunches from salespeople. <laughs> I've never seen an engineer turn it down, a free lunch, uh, like, ever. We, we actually, <laughs> so so speaking of, uh, 
and and I honestly I really do mean this for for listeners um if there's a team and you guys want to learn more about this we do buy pizza we do uh you know <laughs> company specific <laughs> webinars if you give me you know 15 engineers in a room oh man you're going to get pizza and cookies like it's uh you know we'll we'll make it happen we'll do a remote webinar and and talk, just go through a quoting engine it's it's that simple and i i do webinars i do uh public broadcast of webinars uh very frequently for zometry. I have, you know, one coming up on tolerances and just one that's just, here's a website, you know, walk through and use it to, to help through that. But yeah, a lot of it, to your point is there's some people that will just never go and search for this. And how do you, you know, how do you earn their trust? Um, I think uh, some of the best experiences usually like through their stomach. Well, no, well it's, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's pizza. Pizza wins, man. Pizza works. It does. Uh, it does. Uh, but, it's, uh, and sometimes it's someone else on their team order something. And I've seen, you know, Customers who've done millions of dollars of work with us start with a $24 SLS part. Like sometimes there's just a, it's, it's, even though these, their job at Bread and Butter is spec manufacturing, they found us for 3D printing and we just happen to offer so many technologies. So we show up, they order that SLS part, they go through, the guy's like, had a great experience. Uh, some orders another part and you start building momentum actually on the engineering team. And then, you know, you go in and you try to, you know, you try to get pizza for the whole team, right? Or you go and uh, work with your procurement, but it's a, it, it's a different strategy, but it's something that, uh, um, you know, I think we've shown the value problem very well uh, when we do, you know, we do work through. And again, that site sells. The second you upload, you're like, oh my gosh, like it, it just, I've seen people just kind of drop when they see how quick it is, especially the people who've had that pain of procurement for such a long time. Procurement procurement sucks when when your boss is saying we need to get a quote to the customer, and you've got five different things that have to come from five different manufacturers. And like you said earlier, you need to get a quote for one, five, twenty five, and a thousand. And and the customer and you know like you're trying to meet a deadline, and then that guy comes back with a quote for five hundred, which was not a number you asked for. And so you kind of have to guesstimate and backtrack or, you know, like work. It's awful. <laughs> it really sucks. <laughs> uh, I even say, you know, we vet out new technologies and part of that vetting is just getting parts. And you kind of realize like, man, I love Zometry. I can't wait to get this technology on Zometry site because, <laughs> uh, you know, when you're vetting out these new technologies, I have to order. I have to do the exact same thing, like RFQ process. And then I have to go through internal procurement referrals and stuff like that. And, uh, and, uh, and that's just, uh, you know, I just want, you know, my X tiles, I just want my little, you know, pieces to evaluate and, and work with. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Cause again, once I have that up on my site, I could just click, I want 17, I type in one seven, press enter and it uploads and then I can press, or it updates and I can press buy. It's, you know, it's, there's, there's no back and forth. There's a lot of save time. I was talking to Parker earlier and I said, uh, it's like macrofab for metal or plastic or whatever yeah well yeah, I, I, again we have the same client base like we have you know most of a lot of what we say what we make is not large mechanical you know components a lot of it is enclosures and electromechanical systems and you know and we have uh so many use cases so many materials and even like the onset of 3d printing more as a production tool especially for a lot of these low volume uh parts where your rev may change you know, after the first like 133 units. So sometimes it doesn't make sense to tool up. So if you can get away with 3D printing and get your customers to accept whether, whether the surface finish or some, some sort of issue that historically hasn't been well accepted, but people are getting used to it now, um, then go for it. It's, it's a great option. Especially if your product is highly customizable. Um, we see that a lot. 
That's right. So you have like mass customization is a term, and even like local motors, you know, you have mass configuration, which is it's not a bajillion uh, options, but it's forty-eight. It's still more than three, you know. And so yeah, it's it's something that three D printing is very powerful for. You know, uh, just out of curiosity, have you ever had anyone upload something where you just don't have the capability to make that or the certification or like, is there anything that's like so far beyond that can't do it? Yeah. I mean, I want um, my thing printed out of moon dust. <laughs> well, so first off, uh, I can tell Instant you quote where, that please <laughs> yeah, we're past academic, right? So, sure. uh, you know, I mentioned that, you know, we're, we're looking at more standardized processes. So, you know, finishes, materials, anything that, you know, you read about, like first, you know, I, I saw this beautiful thing the other day on a 3d printed heart valve, but it's completely in a science lab right now. And it's, you know, a completely custom equipment. It's not, it's not repeatable. And if you're like, Hey, I have a hundred dollars right now. Can I get, make this out of this material? They'll say, no, it's, you know, there's an engineering effort in between. Have you, have you had anything that you just can't do? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, stuff that I, um, stuff that we can't make, we often have alternatives for, you know, and again, we're representing general manufacturing. So if, you know, if so you got a, Mars dust, yeah, <laughs> yeah. close to moon. Dust. Exactly. <laughs> you know, if, if someone's like, can I have this, you know, can I make this out of this custom super alloy that exists out of one vendor in this one area? And I need this finish, but the finish can only happen at NASA Goddard because they're the only ones who invented this certain type of plating for their satellites. It's something where I can be like, can I help you prototype this? Can I help you, you know, can I machine this out of 7075 for you that brings you up to the spec? Can I, um, you know, a lot of times actually finishing tends to be a bottleneck because uh, especially in aerospace, sometimes they have a specific finishing need. And sometimes the best conversation with that is saying, listen, I could build this part to spec all day long. You know, certain materials, this, uh, you know, uh, this grade, finish, tolerances, you name it. The finish, um, uh, surface finish. Uh, the finishing for like this certain uh, chemical dip that you're doing is not available on an open marketplace. So can we get do the part for you and then you secure the finishing? And, and so sometimes it's more of a, this is what we can do, you know, and it's the 94% chunk of it and we move them to that level. But certainly we, we get that works in. Um, the good job that our application engineers do is say, hey, here's what we can do. Here's some alternatives. Um, what do you think? And they had that conversation uh, directly with our customer. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember multiple times at, at Macrofab, there was, uh, there was things that were not turned down, but, but uh, you know, aid was given to the engineering teams because the things that they had designed were just, they weren't ready for manufacturing or they were just completely incapable of being manufactured. That Like that kind of thing exists for sure. But, but Parker, have you ever run into anything at, at Macrofab that is like just so far beyond the capabilities that it was just like, wow, we can't do this? Yeah, it really depends on, it's mainly like component selection at that point. When you get to like certain type of packages, like actually doing um, uh, wafer packages, where or or what's called flip chip, where chip on board, the, the part is like yeah, chip on board, where the part is like epoxied almost to like a PCB, and you gold jump bond over to the PCB to like, and then you know encapsulates. Like we don't have anyone that really does that, you know, in our network, or we don't have uh, that type of machine and or we've actually had people ask us if we could package dyes into ICs before. <laughs> that's cool. And it's like, well, that's not really what a PCB assembler does, but here's some contacts that you can go and, you know, 
hit them up. Hopefully they can help you out. No, it's a, it's interesting because you're right. There's a, and actually when I think about PCBs, uh, it is interesting because you have more of a standardized base, right? It's almost like sheet metal where you have like a standardized base and then you're, you're forming, forming a function, uh, uh, you know, uh, punching it, uh, doing, you know, engraving, uh, material deposit, but it's still a lot of times it's seven layer, you know, it still has some consistency, uh, to to your expectation uh, and so like there's there's wiggle rooms and like you said your bottleneck it may be component level like it may be like what am i assembling into it and i think for us again it's yeah yeah is it is a non-standard material is a non-standard finish um is it you know the side of a house like you know there's certain things where standard manufacturing you know even on a large marketplace it's if there's one place in the world or one place in the u.s that produces parts like that then very likely, like it's it's specialized manufacturing and it's not general manufacturing. You should probably go to that person and talk to them. <laughs> it's a, yeah, or and you know sometimes we is, we pull miracles out all the time. So we always tell we always start with Have you uploaded your file yet? Because a lot of times we could take a look at the file and uh, you know I get a lot of these questions like How big can you? How small can you? Like these you know these loaded questions like How small of a hole can you make? And a lot of times it's like How deep is the hole? What material is it in? You know, there's there's uh, there's these follow-up questions where the intuition is instantly there when I have the 3D file. I just take a look at it and like measure, measure, uh, whole diameter, process. Yes, it's it's uh, so a lot of times these questions come before we have the CAD model. Where the first thing you do is just upload your CAD model and see what uh, comes out. Speaking of, you just said side of a house. Has someone like uploaded like a sheet metal building? Um, try to get that quoted. <laughs> yeah, what's the craziest thing that's been uploaded? <laughs> Although architects, uh, architects are better now, but keep in mind, software has been catching up to 3D printing technologies. Uh, so software, some of the more traditional software for architecture, for sure, uh, just doesn't know how to make scale model uh, parts. And, and you know, once you scale down a building, things like your handrails are going to be, you know, the size of an atom, like or the thickness of an atom, and and so you have to actually do a lot of post work to to uh, bring these files up so sometimes i'll actually will ask like you know hey i want scale models of my nuclear facility and we're like great they're like so i just tell them do your best to export this as stl as one solid body if at all possible scale it down send it over to us don't press order because very likely like you have screws and nuts and bolts that are just in that file it's just data like it's just (laughs) all it does is make the make the file bigger and uh, we have some tricks of the trade to help simplify that. Uh, like I use a tool called shrink wrap a lot, um, which helps thicken the body. So I could say like, I want all my minimum features to be at least uh, 40,000 thick. And it just goes and kind of like, it does exactly what it's described as. It shrink wraps, it goes and kind of like melds around the, the features digitally and then ignores everything else on the inside. It just kind of basically makes a solid out of it. So you could do some, some tricky things when you're doing scale models. But yeah, once someone uploads something huge, I mean, it'll upload to our side and it'll say error, and you could press uh, um, you could press uh, for a review on the site, and it'll go to our team, and we'll take a look. And sometimes it's a you know a sanity check thing, like where someone is working on like a helicopter design, and they have a panel, but they forgot that the screw that was in the assembly is still way out there in the origin, you know, uh, 12 feet away. And it makes the part overly huge, and then you delete the screw, and now it's a buildable part. So sometimes it's just us reviewing that to figure that out. Exact same thing with PCBs. 
Especially, especially when the scaling of a PCB, but the scaling of the drill drawing are different units or, or something. You'll, you'll try to import that to a Gerber viewer and it looks like your board is an inch by inch, but the whole thing is 48 feet by 120 feet or something like that. Cause the drill drawing is so huge. That is, is the drill drawing like a Vias? The the drill drawing is is just basically NC code that shows here's the all the holes and here's their size. But a lot of times they get exported as a different unit than the actual uh, PCB data. To expand what Steven's saying on that drill file, this is like going way down the rabbit hole of a drill file too, <laughs> is the problem is with those is most EDA tools, which are uh, electronic design uh, applications, the when they export that Exelon drill file, they don't export what format they're exporting it as. Most time, it's default what's called two four, which is like four decimal places, and then two. What's what's pre decimal, pre decimal places? <laughs> numbers. Yeah, numbers. Yeah. Whole numbers. <laughs> numbers. Whole. Two numbers before the decimal place. This is a special name for them. leading digits. Um, leading digits. That that's it. Um. But a lot, a lot of them won't print that in their in the header, and so we you assume it's two four. But a lot of EDA tools will do like two six, or will do something else, and that's what happens. What Stevens explained, where it just will explode into this like crazy, ginormous PCB. Yeah, and I'll, I'll kill this rabbit hole, but I do have to say, STL files are the same way. They're unitless uh, volume uh, volume meshes, and so if a if you're a CAD designer and uh, you design a modeling program that exports as STL or OBJ, uh, you may be uh, designing in, let's say you're designing inches. Uh, you make a part that's two inch by two inch by two inch. When you export it, the STL just says, I'm two. Like it, it just, it just, it doesn't <laughs> say anything else. And then you upload it to our site and we have kind of like a millimeter to inch uh, converter. But if, if uh, the site interprets as millimeters, which is what it does, It'll start at two millimeters and say your part's smaller than a P. Do you want to, you know, change these units? Are you sure? Are you really sure? <laughs> yeah. Are you sure? And we we have had one customer complaint. Uh, I think it's in the Google reviews somewhere, which overall are great positive. Uh, where the guys like my part was smaller than a grain of rice, and they ordered a DMLS part that I think they wanted to be six inches long, and it was like six millimeters, and we it resolved. Like we made it, but they they almost it was almost so unexpected that they found it funny. Like when they got this, like grain of rice piece of stainless steel, uh, it looked like a little macaroni tube, and uh, <laughs> and they're like they're expecting like a muffler out of it. So <laughs> that's impressive yeah. that you guys actually made it. You, you you well, it was it was like right in the middle of the resolvable area. So we we're just like yeah, sometimes people want that stuff. So it's 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 good on us. You didn't question it. Yeah 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 makes sense. Yeah, we were we ran into that issue a lot when we were starting was. Like you'd look at something and be like, "Does the customer really want that?" Well, like we can make it, but uh, that's that's weird. Eh, let's make it anyways. <laughs> yeah, that was that was early zometry too. To be fair, so we were just kind of like, "Oh, the customer's always right," you know. And and so now we've we have yep, systems in review place. process or stuff like yeah. We've implemented the same. Kind, we had we went through the same thing. Is we've used to like people had to confirm the rotations of their parts and stuff and. Because as an engineer, that's something I would like to do. Like, make sure the parts are rotated correctly. On the flip side, there are people that just go next. Don't even look at it. Don't, and yeah, don't like, care. Well, They'll figure it out. Well, and the, you look at it and you're like, well, the 
person said okay on this diode that's this way, but it's clearly the silk screen wants it to go the other way. Well, the customer said okay on the rotation, so we're going to build it that way. Yeah. And it's always wrong. <laughs> it's always <laughs> and then the customer's mad, and what do you do? But the customer's right. The customer's <laughs> always right, even if they were wrong the first time. Well, hey, that's my motto is when I talk to people about customer service, it's even when you're right, you're wrong. Like, just understand, like, even if they did something, a mistake, it's like, it's, you know, it could have been the UX, it could have been something else that, you Correct. know, we need to improve upon. Um, you know, we, you know, instructions are engineering workarounds, right? You know, it's, uh, we want to build a system that's so seamless here uh, that it, and so intuitive that the customer can, again, understand what they're ordering when they press go. Like, they, they have a full review and full knowledge of what they're saying I'm buying. Yeah, and it's it's that balance of having a seamless transaction and being able to, to put in all the information you need so that y'all can build the part, but also reducing the friction of them placing that order. Yeah, yeah. Don't over specify. Like if if they have to redo their entire drawing on our website, we've done it wrong. Yeah. Correct. I and that's, you would uh, get zero yeah. orders if that was the case. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah, zero high value spec orders because uh, I think that's a large client base of ours because it's so easy for them to specify their um, on their site. We we get that, but yeah, I could imagine it's like, oh, what you have, uh, you know, forty eight recordable dimensions. Can you click add, click add, click add? That would be miserable. Uh, so we we keep it simple at Zometry. Very good. Um, well, you do you uh, have any uh, anything to add to that, Parker? Got anything more you want to go through? Uh, I I don't think so. Well, great. How about you, uh, Greg? Uh, no, this is fun. I I love talking chop, and uh, like I said, I've been geeking out with you all. Like you have brought me back, um, you know, about six years ago when I was working with electromechanical systems and and the you know PC board manufacturing and, uh, you know, us building a board with uh, 20, 20 pieces just to find out one prototype, you know, like, and like, again, there's, this industry has evolved just as much as the custom manufacturing industry has. So uh, I love geeking out. This is great. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming on and, and talking to us about your platform and uh, kind of the future of uh, digital manufacturing. Yes. Thank you, Greg. Thank you guys. With that, would you like to uh, sign us out? That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Greg Paulson. And we were your hosts, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer with no O's, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Steven and I get all those emails that you send in. Also, check out our Slack channel. There's a URL for the invite for the Slack channel in the podcast description below. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.